You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so Mark 14, let me lead into this text by asking you to picture this scene. I want you to picture this moment where Jesus has entered into the house of a man named Simon's. And Simon is a Pharisee, so he is a button down, he knows the rules, he's a rule follower. I mean, Simon's kind of got his life together. This is, this is Simon. And Simon's got all of his Pharisee friends around the table, and Jesus is eating with, with this crowd, Simon and his friends, these Pharisees. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this meal, this lady walks into the room. And in just sheer, like, bewilderment, everybody looking at this, not knowing what to make of it, she falls down at the feet of Jesus. Tears of joy rolling down her eyes onto the feet of Jesus. And his, you know, mud-caked, dust-caked feet being soaked with her tears, she takes her hair and begins washing his feet. She has brought with her this ointment and this alabaster flask, that would probably represent her life savings. And she breaks open this flask and begins to anoint his tear-washed feet with this ointment, her life's savings. I mean, it is this moment of unrestrained, nothing held back, no holds barred sort of worship, isn't it? And then all of a sudden, Simon and his friends look at this and they can't believe it. And under their breath, they, they say to themselves that if Jesus just knew who this woman you know, was, they, they called her a sinner, which likely meant that she was a prostitute. If Jesus just knew who this woman was, there is no way he would let this woman touch his feet. No way. And in that moment, Jesus looks back at Simon and his friends and tells this story about two debtors and this money lender. And here it is in Luke chapter 7, verse 41. It'll be on the screen for you. In Luke 7, verse 41, it says this, A certain moneylender, this is the story Jesus tells to Simon and his friends. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That would be the equivalent of 500 days wages. So maybe we could just put a number like $100,000 onto it. Something like that. 500 denarii. And the other, 50 denarii. Maybe we could put like, $8,000 onto that one. So we've got a massive debt, like a $100,000 debt, and then we've got a much smaller debt, like an $8,000 debt. So we've got these these two guys, they they both are in debt to this money lender. Verse 42, when they could not pay, the money lender canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will, will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And in this moment, I would just think Jesus is looking at Simon saying, yeah, that's the point, Simon. That is the point. The the reason she is loving me more and worshiping me with this sort of unrestrained, nothing held back sort of worship. The reason she is doing that, yet I've been in your house all along and you've done none of that, Simon. The reason for that is because she is recognizing the size of her debt of sin. She is seeing that for what it is. It's a 500 denarii debt. And Simon, the problem is your debt is equally big, but you can't see it. 
You think yours is this real small little pile of sin, not this massive pile of sin debt. And Simon, the reason she will worship like that and love me like that while you won't right now is because she sees her sin, but she also sees my faithfulness in the midst of her sin, my forgiveness that cancels her sin. But but Simon, you, you don't see it, and so you're not loving like that. And he goes on in verse 47 to clarify. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, and she knows that they're many, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. It produces this deep and abiding love of God and other people in her. But, the, but, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you see the logic of Jesus When you know your sin debt is is piled miles high and in the moment where Jesus comes and in a moment of forgiveness wipes your debt clean, it produces in us this extravagant sort of love for Jesus, these deep abiding affections for Jesus. But when we think that our sin is really small and contained in this little pile down here, grace never seems to really amaze us, does it? So what Luke 7 is doing, it is putting in what I would just call like bold print, neon letters flashing, what I would call the key to Christian living. This is like, if you want to become a Christian or if you want to live well as a Christian, this is the key to doing that. Here is the key to Christian living that we're seeing Jesus clarify in Luke 7. The key to Christian living is this, seeing accurately, vividly, seeing our sinfulness and at the same time seeing accurately and vividly God's faithfulness. It's seeing both of those two things. This is the key. Seeing both of these two things is the key that unlocks the the doors of our heart into this deep, abiding, genuine love of Jesus and this love for other people. It's the key that unlocks the, the sort of life that God has designed us to live. It's seeing the depth of our sin and at the same time, the depth and the beauty of God's faithfulness. So, so it starts with us seeing our sinfulness. Like we have got to see just how far, like, like this lady in Luke 7, we've got to see and know just how far the whole of our sin goes, just how deep and dark and disgusting that it is. And when we see that, it begins to unlock these doors. It begins to prepare us for grace. If we don't see our sin, we are stuck in the Christian life. If we can't see our sin, we'll never become a Christian. And listen, even for those who are sons and daughters of God, we have to see that even our best deeds empowered by grace are still shot through with sin. Even our best ones. That the the whole of sin in our life is, is, it runs deeper and further than we could ever imagine. We've got to see that with clarity. This is part one of the key. This is one side of the coin. But at the same time, we've got to see God's faithfulness. That God loves to meet us right in the middle of our dark and disgusting sin. Amen? This is like the good news of the gospel. That God loves to meet us right in the middle of that. And he meets us by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in our place. To die on the cross for our sin, risen from the dead on the third day. This is how God chases down even the, the fastest sin in our life and covers and cleanses it. The key to the Christian life is both us seeing 
our sinfulness on one hand and God's faithfulness on the other. His mercy, his extravagant grace on the other. Let me just tie these two together and kind of explain some of how these two things work together. This idea of seeing our sinfulness and at the same time seeing God's amazing grace over it. And maybe we could put it like this. You'll never, in your life and in my life, we'll never really see and celebrate God's grace until we really see and consider our sin. We'll never really see and celebrate God's grace until we know what that grace has really covered and cleansed us of. Maybe we could say it this way. If your sin seems small, grace will always seem small to you. If your sin doesn't seem that bad, grace will never seem that good. Until you see your utter poverty before God, we'll never be amazed at God's provision in Jesus for our poverty. Until we see how deathly serious sin is, we'll never be deeply amazed by God's remedy of grace. See how those two things work together? It's in seeing our sin that our hearts become overwhelmed and amazed at God's grace. Maybe we think about it in terms of just the storyline of the Bible would would consistently reaffirm and confirm this. That the Bible consistently shows us that seeing our sinfulness is the prerequisite for us receiving grace. Like before we can receive grace, we have to see our sinfulness. Before we're ever going to cry out for mercy, we've got to know that we actually need saving. So without seeing our sin and all of its ugliness, we will never walk into and embrace and have a heart that is alive to the beauty of grace. And when we don't see the beauty of grace, when when grace never captures our heart, we always struggle and, and kind of lumber in our Christian life. So the key to Christian living is both seeing our sinfulness on one hand and seeing God's amazing, unbelievable, never stopping faithfulness on the other. Now here's what happens in Luke 7. In Luke 7, Jesus is looking at Simon the Pharisee who who just thought his sin is real small and contained, just needs a little bit of grace and he's okay. He's looking at Simon the Pharisee and he is saying, Simon, will you please walk with me? I'm inviting you in to see just how dark your sin is. But Simon, I'm not going to leave you there. I want you to also see how faithful I am in the midst of your sin. Simon, I want you to see that. And in Mark 14, Jesus is about to look at all of us and invite us into the same thing. I want to invite you to see how dark your sin is. And then at the same time, I want to overwhelm you and amaze you at God's unbelievable faithfulness in the mess of your sin. That's where we're going this morning. So we're going to start with the idea of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness. This is going to be the first half of the passage that we're working through this morning. Our sinfulness. And so now let me just, let me preface this talk about sinfulness by just acknowledging that in our 21st century culture, talk about sin falls on um, really hard ears. People don't like that. But let, let me just try to clarify again, that if we don't talk about sin, we can never see God's amazing grace. If we don't clarify sinfulness, we'll never be amazed at God's faithfulness. Like the great news about the gospel is that it absolutely satisfies a human heart. It's the only thing that can. But here is how it does it. Before the gospel satisfies us, it always sobers us. It sobers us with our sin so that then it can satisfy us with its grace. 
This is how the the gospel always works in our life. So hang with me, bear with me, because we're gonna have to see how disgusting our sin is before we can be amazed at just how good God's grace is. So our sinfulness, pick it up in verse 12 of Mark 14. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and, whoever, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now you might just underline, maybe circle that word Passover. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But that word Passover is a massive idea in the lives of any first century Jewish person, any Jewish person. It is a massive moment in the history of Israel. The the Passover celebrated and was really a celebration of the formative event in in the people of Israel. It celebrated the moment when under great oppression and tyranny in Egypt, God freed them from that. He busted them out of Egypt. They became a people and they were now free to worship and celebrate God's goodness toward them. The Passover meal here is celebrating that formative event. In the people of Israel, the Passover meal was a sacred celebration. But this sacred celebration in verse 17 takes a real turn for the worst. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you 12, one of you 12, one of you will betray me. One who is like right now around this table, one who is eating with me. Now I want you to notice in verse uh, verses eight, or verse 18 there, how ambiguous the statement is. It's very general, isn't it? It's, hey, one of you guys are about to do this. I'm not going to say which. It's one of you, though. G- go and consider. Okay, now look at verse 20. The ambiguity continues. He said to them in verse 20, it is one of the 12. Hey, 12 disciples, you know, you guys who have been with me for the last three years doing ministry, seeing miracles, all of that stuff. It's going to be one of you that does this thing. It's going to be one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Do you see how ambiguous he leaves it? See, if, now think about what's happening here. If his point was to say to all of us, hey, Judas is the guy. Or if his point was for, for in this moment to say to Judas, hey, Judas, I know what you're doing. I think it would have sounded much more like this if that was his point. If his point was to clarify for the world, it's Judas that's going to do this. I think in that moment, he would have taken the 12 in the room and he would have said, hey guys, everybody look at Judas. Does everybody see Judas right now? Great. Everybody looking at him? Good. He's about to betray me. That guy right there, he's the traitor. That would have been how it had gone down. But he, his point was obviously not to single Judas out in this thing. He is intentionally ambiguous. Now think about why would he want to be ambiguous in that moment? I think verse 19 provides the answer. Look at verse 19. Why is he ambiguous? Because he is wanting to create a moment where this happens. Verse 19. So they, all 12 of the disciples in the room, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him and one one after another, is it I? Is it I? 
Jesus is intentionally ambiguous so that the disciples can all take a personal, deep look at their own heart, and here's what they realize in that moment. Oh my gosh, I might be the one that's doing that. It might be me. I might, Jesus just said somebody is about to betray him, the sinless son of God, God in the flesh. Someone is about to, you know, to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, the most spectacular sin probably in the history of the world. Somebody is about to do that, and they are all realizing in that moment, it might be me. Oh, he could be talking about me. See, Jesus' ambiguity in this passage is meant to lead to verse 19, where every one of the disciples realized this, there is a Judas in me. Judas isn't just out there. Judas is actually right here too, that I am actually capable of that. Now, Mark 14, in particular verse 18 and 20, this ambiguity is supposed to lead us to the exact same place. For us in the room this morning, it is meant to lead us to a moment where we ask this question, could that be me? It's supposed to lead us to that moment where we realize, just like the disciples, that Judas also exists in me. He's not just out there in other people. He's actually right here living in me, that I've got Judas in me. I've told this story multiple times, and I want to keep telling it because I want it actually to be embedded into the fabric of our church culture. Um, I came across this story when I was studying and, and when we were working through the set of sermons in 1 Peter. I was reading through Edmund Clowney's commentary on 1 Peter. And he tells the story of a guy named Yehil Denor. He was a Jewish man who spent 18 or several years, I don't know how long it was, several years in a concentration camp. And he survived it. And later on, they found a guy named Adolf Eichmann, who was kind of the Nazi architect of so much of the Holocaust. They found him and they began to to try him. They put him on trial. And part of how they would do the trial is they would bring in survivors of these concentration camps and they would testify against these German officers about the sort of atrocities they have done. And I mean, think about it. This guy was like one of the primary central figures in creating the, the, the death machine of the concentration camps. So in this moment, they call uh, Yehil Denor into the room where Adolf Eichmann is. And he walks into the room. You could just like cut the tension with a knife. This is the guy responsible for killing millions of people. I mean, just personified evil. And Yehil Denor walks into the room and he has to walk right by where Adolf Eichmann is. Just within just a, a, you know, a, a little touch right over there. Th- th- there he is. And when he walks by him, he literally becomes overwhelmed with emotion. He faints and falls to the floor. Now, a couple of years later, a guy named Mike Wallace was doing an interview with Yehil Denor on, on 60 Minutes. And and here's kind of what happened in that moment. He asked Yehil Denor, you know, like, what, what happened? What, what, what happened to you? Did, did, like, were you just overcome with thoughts about what happened? Did you, like, see all of these things that, you know, years ago had, had gone down in those concentration camps? Why did you faint and fall to the floor? What happened? And here was how the article goes on. He, he says this, No, it was none of those. Rather, as Denor explained to Wallace, All at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Denor. I saw that I am capable to do this as well. I saw that I am 
exactly like him. Mike Wallace goes on to, to summarize the whole interview with, with Denor by saying this, Eichmann is in all of us. And that is exactly what Mark 14 is trying to convince you and I of, is that Judas is in all of us, that Eichmann is in all of us. You just pick out the name. Hitler is in all of us. You just pick out the, the, the guy that personifies or the person that personifies evil for you. That person is in you too. That exists in you too. Maybe I could lean into it by asking this question. And I, I, it's hard for me to even emphasize how important the answer to this question is for you and I. Question would be this. When you think of the biggest sinner that you know, who is that? Who is the biggest sinner that you know? I mean, who is like the, the varsity? This is like the real deal, legit. I mean, they sin and they do it like, in a crazy way. Who, who are those people for you? Now, when we are out of touch with our own sinfulness, here's what begins to happen. We begin to take on the posture of the Pharisees in the Bible. Do you remember that moment where the Pharisees um, are in the temple and a tax collector walks in? And the Pharisee looks down at the tax collector and says, thank God I'm not like one of those people. Man, th- thank the Lord I'm not like them. Man, look at all these things that I do up here. Th- thank the Lord I'm not like. We begin to take on that posture. That all of these other people are the bad guys. All of these other people are the really bad ones, but not us. But when we begin to see our sin clearly, just how deep the darkness goes in our own heart, here is what we all begin to answer to this question. When we contemplate who is the worst sinner I know, we can honestly say I am because I know my own personal sin the most. I know the sort of thoughts that I have. I know the sort of anger that is in me. I know the sort of pride that is in me. I know the sort of lust that is in me. I see it all in me. Then we take the posture of the tax collector in the temple. Rather than saying, man, thank God I'm not like one of those, the, the, the tax collector, he beats his breast as he looks up to God and says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we begin to have that posture. So so let me just ask you again, who is the worst sinner you know? That that question, it says so much about how you view your own personal sin. Now, let me just go ahead and anticipate one objection. The objection could go like this. So seriously, Rodney, you're saying like I'm worse than Adolf Hitler? Like he's killed millions of people. I haven't. Seriously, you're saying that we're the same. And let me clarify, No, I'm not. There is a significant difference between you and Adolf Hitler. You haven't, hopefully by God's grace, killed millions of people. And I pray you never do, right? So I want to acknowledge that difference. But here's what I am saying. It is not enough, when we're contemplating our sinfulness, it's not enough just to ask the question, what have I done? It's not enough just to look down at your past and say, okay, let me line up the deeds. What have I done? It's not enough just to say, what have I done? We also have to ask the question, what am I capable of doing? Now that's a whole different question, isn't it? That's when we start to see that although we are different than Hitler, we also have Hitler in us. Although we might be different from Judas, we have Judas in us. Although we we might be different from Adolf Eichmann, we have Eichmann in us. That's the difference. Listen to how Tim Keller describes this. This will be on the screen for you. He says, when it comes to the understanding of our sinfulness, it's not enough just to ask, what have I done? But also, what am I capable of doing? 
If I was under certain threats, certain temptations, certain pressures, and certain opportunities, could I produce great evil under certain circumstances which I have not yet currently experienced? And the Bible says, and everybody hear this, the Bible says yes to that, that you are capable of the worst of it, that there is no sin that you can fathom that you are not capable, apart from God's grace, of committing. That you're capable of it all. Now think about how the Bible teaches us this. It teaches us this in so many ways. And here's one of them. Think about our biblical heroes. Think about um, Moses. Now Moses is a great guy, isn't it? But he, or isn't he? But he's got like a serious like spot blotch on his resume. Moses killed the man in anger. Think about David. We love David. There's so much good we could say about David. But here's the truth about David. He is also the guy that had an affair and killed the husband to try to cover it. Think about Noah. There's so much good we could say about Noah. But Noah is the guy that got drunk in his tent and fell asleep naked when his kids walked in on him. Are we seeing the picture here? That even, so, so think about what the Bible is saying in these moments. When we're looking at even the best of the people, our heroes in the Bible, and seeing the, the spots on their resume that aren't so good. The Bible is not teaching us in that, that the worst of us are capable of the worst sins. It's teaching us that the best of us are capable of the worst sin. Now, do you know that about you? That the whole of sin is so dark in you that there is no sin under the right circumstances and apart from God's grace that you're not capable of. It was interesting, several uh, months ago, I was with uh, just a room full of friends and we were, I'm just chatting and one of the guys was kind of just walking us through. He's just in a really, really hard and rough season. And at one point, the guy looked at all of us, you know, just friends in the room and said, you know what? I think I could kill a guy. Now, that's kind of a sobering moment, isn't it? I, I think I could kill a guy. And it was so interesting what happened in the room after that. There's kind of a pregnant pause there, you know? Like, I hope he's not killing me, right? And so, so you know, there's that pregnant pause. And then another guy looked at him and said, you know what? I think I could kill a guy too. And then another one in the room said, I know I could kill a guy. <laughs> I know I could, right? It was just this moment of, and I, I love what happened in that moment. It was just a moment where we're all recognizing that apart from grace, we're capable of anything. Now, do you see that about you? That apart from grace, there is no sin that's out of your reach. Now, let me make sure we clarify this as well when we're talking about sin. That when the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't just say that sin is an action. Sin is also an affection. It's not just action, it's also affection. So think about this in terms of Luke 15. Do you remember the story of the, the two sons, prodigal son and the older son, the younger and the older brother? Think about it in terms of this story. Think about the younger brother. He is going to sin with bold actions. He's going to be the guy that says, Father, I don't care about you. Give me the money. I'm going to go kind of do my life my way. It's going to be loose living in the far country. I don't care about you, Father. So it's bold action. It's like neon blinking signs. It's that sort of bold action sin. But think about the older brother. The older brother didn't sin in bold actions, but in cold affections. 
cold affections. So he did everything the father wanted him to do. He abided by all the rules. He, he followed everything to a T. He was in on all of the rules. There was no bold actions that he was like cutting across here. But here's what Luke 15 shows us, that although he was not sinning in bold actions, he was definitely sinning in cold affections. And at the end of the day, he was no different from the younger brother. He too, just like the younger brother, had the same amount of disdain for the father. Both of them were sin. See, the the younger brother would be the picture of the tax collectors and Pharisees. Sin in big, bright, bold letters. The older brother is is pictured in kind of the, the representation of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They're towing the line. They're buttoned down. They follow the rules. But all the while, they have the exact same disdain for God in their heart. Cold in their affections. So it's important that we see that sin is bigger than just doing the wrong thing. Sin is also doing the right thing with the wrong heart. It's doing the right, the right thing with cold affections. See, sin is much bigger than just the actions. It's also these, these affections, our desires for God. The, the Bible labels all of that as sin. And in this passage, it's trying to clarify all of that stuff. Bold actions and cold affections affects us all in ways that we can't even fathom. Now look at verse 21. This is where this, this passage gets so sobering. Verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus isn't just inviting us to recognize our sinfulness. In verse 21, he's inviting us to recognizing just how serious our sin is before God. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now look at this last phrase. When I read this, And just thinking about this this week, it literally has shaken me to the core. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Selah on that. It would have been better for this man if he would have never existed. See, in light of the depth of our sinfulness, in light of that combined with God's just wrath for our sin, which equals an eternity separated from God forever in hell for all of those who reject Jesus. In light of that, Jesus is saying, it would be better for for this man who rejects Jesus, it would have been better for him never to have been born. And this is the shocking reality of just how how serious God takes our sin, how serious God's just wrath is for our sin, that over every human being's life that rejects Jesus, this could be written over it. Every human being that rejects Jesus, this phrase, it would have been better if they would have never have been born, could be written over their life. Now, Selah on that. That should absolutely shake us in here. That is how serious sin is. This is, how, this is how serious God's wrath for sin is. Verse 21 is giving us a foretaste of just how bitter God's wrath will be for every person who rejects Jesus for all eternity. It's giving us a foretaste of that. That it would be better for them never to have existed than to endure that for all of eternity. Now here is the turn in the morning. This passage does not just show us how deep and how serious and how sinful we are. It also shows us just how faithful God is. Aren't we grateful that the Bible doesn't leave us in our sin? 
but gives us a remedy in the person and work of Jesus for our sin. See, this passage isn't just showing us our sinfulness. It's showing us how God faithfully meets us in our sin with grace and mercy. It's showing us a picture of God's faithfulness. So this is where we pick up the idea of the Passover. We saw it in the first couple of verses in this passage. Verse 16, you see that they're preparing this Passover meal. And this idea of the Passover takes us all the way back to Exodus, the story of Exodus in the Bible. It takes us all the way back there. So here, here's how the story goes. Joseph, you remember Joseph? He was sold into slavery down into Egypt. He rose to second command over all of Egypt. He brings his family down. And now the people of Israel begin to grow and expand. Now they're numerous in, in Egypt. And the Pharaohs who were grateful for, for Joseph and gracious to the people of Israel, they have all died off. And now they look at these numerous Israelites and think this, I want them gone. I don't like them. So they began to oppress the people of Israel. They began to kill all of their, their, their newborn boys. They began to ruthlessly set up taskmasters, essentially putting the people of Israel in a form of slavery. All of this is going down in, in, in Egypt. And the people of Israel in Egypt, under this oppression and tyranny, look up to God and they cry out for deliverance. And God raises up a deliverer in a man named Moses. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh, God told me to tell you, let these people go. Let, let them go. And Pharaoh looks back and laughs and says, no, I, I'm not letting the people go. And so Moses says, okay, well, it's going to go bad for you. Plagues are coming. And so you've got all of these wild plagues like boils and locusts and the Nile turning to blood. All of these crazy things happen. And Moses would keep going back to Pharaoh and saying, and God's saying, just let my people go. Surrender to that. Submit to that. And Pharaoh looks back and says, I will not do it. And finally, Moses looks at him and says, there's a tenth and final plague coming. It's going to be the worst of all. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt is going to be killed. That's the 10th plague. God's just wrath is going to settle on the land. Every firstborn wiped away in the land. Now hear this. It's every firstborn in the land. Who else is in the land? Egypt, right? The people of Israel. It's not just Egyptians. It's also the people of Israel in the land. So at first glance, this is not good news for Israel. This is the first plague. Every other plague they've been protected from. This is the first plague where we see, oh no, when, when God's just judgment settles on the land of Egypt, the people of Israel are going to be doomed too. They're going to be swept away with God's wrath too. See, th this is giving us a picture in the story of Exodus that although the people of God are great sufferers in Exodus, they're also great sinners in Exodus. They're also full of sin. They're also, when, when the wrath of God comes, they're also going to be held to account. And so it looks like terrible news upon the surface. Or on the surface. We're going to be swept away as well. But in Exodus 12, God makes provision for their sinfulness. He looks at the people of Israel and he gives them very specific instruction. People of Israel, here is how you can be saved from my wrath. It's going to kill every firstborn. You can go take a spotless lamb. Spotless. And you can slaughter that spotless lamb. And in faith, you take the blood of that lamb and you wipe it across the doorframe of your house. And when my just wrath settles over the land of Egypt, my just wrath, when it sees by faith, you smearing that blood across the doorframe of your house, my just wrath will pass over your house and you will not be consumed by it. You will be saved from it. But listen, people of Israel, it's either a perfect lamb or your life. 
It's either a perfect lamb or your life. But all of those who in faith take the lamb, take the blood over the house, you will be rescued and you will be saved from my wrath and your sin. Now, the, the disciples all knew that story. And just like every other Jewish man, they had celebrated that story every year in the exact same way. This was like embedded into the culture of Jewish life. Every year they would celebrate the Passover meal. They had a, a very strict ritual that they would follow and how they would do it. And this was familiar to every one of these disciples. They knew exactly what was happening in this moment until you get to verse 22. That's when the world was shocked for them. They knew everything about this Passover meal, what was gonna be happening. But verse 22 absolutely shocked them. Here's how verse 22 goes. And as, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. They had eaten the unleavened bread of the Passover meal all of their life, but they had never, ever had a moment where, where the person hosting the meal took the bread and said, hey, let me redefine what this bread is saying. This bread is actually my body that was broken for you. See, in that moment, if you were in the room, you could have felt the blast of the shockwave happen. You would have seen every one of like the, the disciples' jaw just drop in that moment as they realized the Passover really isn't about freedom from Egypt. It's about freedom from our sin. The, the, the deliverer is really not Moses. The real deliverer is Jesus, the Passover lamb. This is starting to dawn on them that the Passover is really just a symbol. It's really just a sign. And Jesus is the substance. You, you see it in verse 23, it goes on. And as he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank it. And he said to them in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. They had drank wine in every Passover meal they had ever celebrated. That was normal to them. But they had never had a moment where a person, the host, took the wine and said, let me redefine what this wine means. This wine is gonna be my blood poured out for your sin. So that now when, when you trust in that blood, you smear it over the doorframe of your life, here's what will happen for you. Rather than the wrath of God consuming you, it will pass over you. You will be welcomed into the family of God rather than consumed by the wrath of God. In this moment, the Passover was completely being redefined by Jesus. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, do you see what's happening here? My body is about to be broken for your sin so that your body won't have to be broken for it. My life is about to be wrung out, the blood of my life, my life wrung out under God's just judgment for your sin so that your life won't have to be wrung out. I'm gonna be ripped to shreds so that you can be made whole. And this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, 5, 7 can celebrate this. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That it, the debt has been paid. Our mound of sin, that, that whole debt of that sin has been wiped clean in our life. This is what the Passover is getting at. This is what Jesus is showing them in this moment. See, what the Passover in this moment is reminding all of his disciples then and us now, it's reminding us of regardless of how far our sin has gone, grace reaches even further. And it's reminding us of regardless of how fast our sin has run, 
God's grace will always have the speed to catch it, to cover it, and to cleanse it. It's reminding us of all of that. I love how Mike Wilkerson, he wrote a book called Redemption, where it goes to the story of Exodus. And when he gets to this idea of the Passover, here's his title to the chapter of, of in, in that, you know, the title of the, the chapter of that part of the book. He calls it this, when we are at our worst, God is at his best. And that is exactly what Jesus is showing them. When you start to see your worst, when you're sinking in your own sin, here is what you get to celebrate and realize and receive. God's grace covers it all. God's grace is big enough to handle it all. When you start to look down into your heart and see just how far and deep and disgusting the whole of sin is in you, that we can all celebrate that God's grace gets down to the bottom of all of that and covers it all. Now, here's what I want to do to finish up. I just want to apply this in a few areas of our life. And so I want you to look on the screen for a second. I want to, I want to give you three categories. And it's really important that you get a sense of what's happening, what I'm trying to do here. So there's, there's really three places that you and I could be in regards to our sin in the room. Three categories. Category one is we could be in that place of, of just not recognizing our sin. We just don't see how sinful we are. That's category one. We don't see our sin. Category two is we only see our sin. Oh, we see it all right, but that's all we see. We don't see any part of God's faithfulness and his grace and mercy that covers it. Category three is we, we both see our sinfulness, but we also see God's faithfulness. We, we see both of those things. We, we don't, we're not left in the despair of our sin. We also are left with the hope of God's faithfulness. So we could be in one of those three categories. I want to give you just six really quick practical playouts of what it feels like to be in each of these categories. Six kind of examples of how this plays out in our life. When we don't see our sin, when we only see our sin, and then when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness. Here's the first one. When we don't see our sin, we are harsh and judgmental toward others. When we only see our sin, we are harsh and judgmental with ourselves. When we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we are gracious toward all. See how that works? When, when we don't see our sin, we become very harsh and critical and judgmental out, out that way. When we only see it, it's an internal. We're harsh and judge, you know, judgmental this way. But when we see both God's faithfulness and our sinfulness, it unleashes grace in our life. I, maybe I, I heard one guy illustrate it this way, and I think this is such a perfect illustration. If you're noticing that you are harsh and overly critical to other people, consider this illustration. I want you to think of yourself as one of two friends. So you, it's you and another friend, and you decide one day that you are going to go rob a bank. It's on. That bank is getting robbed. It's happening today. Y'all have decided it's happening. And on the way to the bank, you decide you're going to stop at a friend's house. So you stop at the friend's house, and you tell your friend, we're about to rob a bank. It is happening right now. We're doing this. And your friend looks at you and says, don't rob the bank. Whatever you do, robbing a bank is a bad idea today. Don't do it. But you look at him and say, no, we have decided we're robbing the bank. And you, run, you and your friend both run out the door and your friend runs after you. He dives and he catches your friend's shirt in his right hand and your shirt in his left hand. He's got you both by the shirt. And your friend's shirt happens to just rip smooth off of his back. And he runs out, he robs the bank, he kills the security guard, and now he's on death row. 
For whatever reason, his left hand grabbed your shirt and your shirt didn't rip. He caught you. He wrestled you to the ground. He pinned you down and he wouldn't let you go until you came to your senses. Now, I want you to think about what happens when you go and visit your friend on death row. Do you walk in and is this your posture? You are such an idiot. What were you doing robbing a bank? Why, why did you do that? Is that? That's not your posture, is it? Your posture is this. Oh, but for the grace of God, I would have done it too. I was doing it. And God, God, the mystery of grace rescued me from it. Can you just see how that unleashes grace in extraordinary ways in your life? See, if, if you're seeing that you're harsh toward others, it's because grace and like the idea of your sinfulness is not sunk deep into your heart. That it's only because God has grabbed your shirt, wrestled you to the ground and pinned you down until you came to your senses that you haven't robbed a bank. Here's the second way. When we don't see our sin, forgiving others is impossible. When we only see our sin, forgiving ourselves is impossible. When we see both, forgiveness flows freely to all. If you're in here this morning and you just have bitterness and anger toward people, you just can't let go of it. You just cannot forgive. Just know this, that's a gospel issue. The issue is seeing your own sinfulness on one hand and seeing God's amazing grace for you on the other. If you read Matthew 18, it does a really great job of unpacking that. That when, when forgiveness gets jammed up in our life, it's because we have stopped seeing our sin debt before God and God's grace in removing it. Third way to apply it. When we don't see our sin, we are arrogant. We're prideful. We're the people that say, I could never do that. That, that sin is beyond me. When we only see our sin, we are self-loathing and in despair. And I worry about this for a lot of us, that we get stuck just in our sin, that we get real like, woe is me, self-loathing on the brink of despair, on the cliff, ready to jump. We just get to that place. I don't want to remind us all, there is a cross and there is a resurrection. Amen? Those things exist, right? It should give us a lot of hope. So when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we walk in humble confidence before God and others. Fourth way to apply it. When we don't see our sin, we have no sin to repent of. So repentance never happens in our life because we don't even know what we'd repent of. When we only see our sin, our sin is too bad to repent of. We feel like we're beyond repentance. We're too far gone. When we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we quickly and joyfully repent knowing grace covers and cleanses all of our sin. Fifth way to apply it. When we don't see our sin, we never start the fight against sin in our life. There's no sin to fight. Like what sin are we gonna declare war on when we don't see any of it? When we only see our sin, we lose heart and stop the fight. It just seems overwhelming. It's like we're fighting the mist. There's just too much of it. It's hopeless. So we just stop fighting sin and we resign that we're just always going to live this way, always going to be this way. When we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we lean into grace and endure in the fight. That, that we're humble in the fight because we know we're sinful, but we're hopeful because we know of God's faithfulness and grace. And the sixth way to apply it. When we don't see our sin, grace seems below us. Like down here, like who needs grace? Like we've got our life together. We're buttoned down, we're following the rules. Who, who needs grace? Grace seems below us. When we only see our sin, grace seems above us, like out of reach. Like there's no way God's grace could, could apply to me and rescue me. There's no way. 
But when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, grace electrifies us. It brings our heart to life. Something inside of us breaks open. And like the woman in Luke 7, there is this unrestrained, nothing held back, no holds barred sort of worship that erupts in us. That's what happens when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness together. And I'll just close with this. I love the story of John Newton. He's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And when he was 82 years old, he was on his deathbed. And this is one of the last things he said. Last things. He said this. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. And I just pray by God's grace, we would remember these two things every moment, every day of our life. I remember these two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. And that's why he could write and that we could joyfully sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.